Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. As usual, we're here to answer questions you may have about Buddhism or your meditation practice with an emphasis on supporting your practical application of the Buddhist teaching. So if you have questions that are of importance to you, please feel welcome to post them in the chat at any time. We'll spend the first 15 minutes gathering questions. And once you've answered, asked your question, we will spend the rest of the 15 minutes in silent meditation. So we'll gather the questions at the same time. You can take the time to clear your mind Focus your mind and prepare yourself to make this a wholesome and beneficial experience. So I'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour to begin asking, answering the questions that have been asked. Until then, you can do walking or sitting or walking and sitting. If you haven't practiced meditation in this tradition, you can take a look at the link at the bottom of the screen. It's a direct link to our booklet that provides basic instruction on how to practice walking and sitting, and just general instruction on the practice of mindfulness in this tradition. So I'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour.
All right, that's 15 minutes, and we're back. So from here on, we will begin to answer questions. We'd ask that you limit the messages in the chat to questions only from here on. After the second intensive course, I stopped any sexual activity. But a few weeks ago, I found myself chatting over the phone in a lustful way with a person who has family, breaking the third precept. Now I find it difficult to come out from these daily conversations. Can you please give some advice? Well, I guess um, most important is that you refrain from having these conversations behind the back of someone who is committed and uh, someone whose trust is being broken that's not healthy yeah but that's far more important than um than refraining from those converse such conversations entirely but if you're talking about still having conversations with someone who by family i think you mean i assume you mean has a partner I assume that's what you're saying, because that would be the only way it breaks the third precept. Um, yeah, breaking the third precept's a bad thing. If you're just having such conversations with someone when there is no party being deceived or who is who is being whose trust is being broken by these conversations, then you, it's not something you should be as concerned about. So, I, I mean, my advice, practically speaking, would be to choose and find ways to ensure that such conversations are not engaged upon with deceit or, um, yeah, deceit. That not in any way that it could be, it could be rightfully perceived as as hurtful as unjust because of course i mean romance romance is often hurtful anyway even ordinary romance someone gets hurt but i mean it's one thing for someone to get hurt it's another for it to be uh, deceptive where you're going behind someone's back breaking trust or helping someone else to break their trust you should understand that that is unwholesome and problematic, not the basis for a stable relationship, of course. Um, but from a meditative point of view, you, of course, should continue to be mindful of your desires and mindful of the stress and be able to see the stress that comes from such deception and such unwholesomeness should help you to see through such situations where you understand that either this person who's deceiving their partner is not worthy of any kind of interest or else um, they they come to a realization that they have to be 
more forthcoming about the, the truth of the situation with their partner. As as long as it's as long as there's truth involved, then I think an arrangement and understanding can be reached. It's about deception and breaking trust and that sort of thing. Much more than it is about the actual desire, which is understandable and for a layperson is reasonable. Well, it's uh, understandable anyway. How does one break the loop of negative thinking cycles? My pet is unwell, and after having lost another pet recently, my mind keeps bringing up the worst scenario. I note this jumping around and negative thoughts as thinking. I realize that me wanting to break away from the loop is also disliking. Should I note disliking? Absolutely. You have to be clear that there's no such thing as negative thinking. A negative thought is not a not real, uh, not, the, not a valid description. There's the thought, and then there is the emotion or the the um, the response to the thought, the liking or the disliking, or things like worry or fear, or doubt or confusion. I mean, anything like that. That's all. That's the generally negative side of it. Thoughts themselves can't be negative, even if it seems like a terrible thought. It's still just a thought, and if you're mindful thinking. You can uh, prevent the arising of any reaction, any judgment, any unwholesomeness. But the negativity is in the disliking. It's in the uh, things like worry and fear and doubt and liking, that sort of thing, wanting. So in this case, if there's disliking, you should be able to separate it from the thoughts and not put too much weight on the thoughts. Um, the worst scenario might bring up fear, but the scenario itself you have to separate. It's just thoughts. Don't try and get rid of them. Don't be afraid of them. Don't feel like there's something wrong with you or there's something wrong with them. They're just thoughts. Don't let them, don't give them any power over you. Okay, this thought's going to come back. I see you thinking, thinking. Don't let it bother you. Don't, don't, don't make it all about whether the thought comes or not. Don't make your happiness dependent on the non-arising of certain thoughts, right? When you call them negative, that's what you're doing. You're saying, this is the problem, and if they arise, the problem arises. But that's not true. Thoughts can arise without any problem. Even the worst-seeming thoughts are just thoughts. Try and see it in that way. And, and also with the disliking, I mean, don't even see it as a problem. Just see it as an experience and try and understand it. You'll, 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 you'll come to see as you watch that disliking and things like that are a problem but just let that happen naturally don't take any view of what they might be just try and see them and let yourself gain true understanding and clarity about what they are that oh yes this is why this is a problem and just see that and when you see that your mind disinclines towards them and stops worrying your mind stops worrying about the thoughts it's just like oh yeah there comes that silly thought again you know and there it goes again and that's it The mantra is putting me away from the object, and it is very stressful to focus on the new object if the object switches, for example, from breath to hearing, etc. 
What can I do? Well, stressful is not the, the nature of the focusing. Focusing isn't stressful. You're doing something like stressing over it is what's happening. That's just a, an average response. It's a, a, bad, a bad habit. The way we deal with things is to stress, to worry, to need, to control, that sort of thing. And that's what's stressful. Now, that's what this isn't designed to show you. It's designed to show you how your mind works, that you can't do a simple thing like switch from one object to another. Um, like that shouldn't, there's no reason why that should be stressful, but you can't do such a simple thing without stressing. That's on you. That's not on the practice. And that's why you're practicing, to see those things, to see how stressful it is, to see how your habits are stressful, are causing you stress, and thereby to change your attitude towards them. Your attitude changes because you see that you're causing yourself stress. The practice isn't doing that. Now, the mantra is um, limiting your connection with the object, and that's important. That is also what it's designed to do. It's designed to remind you and keep you focused on seeing as just seeing. That's all it is. You dismiss it. It's just seeing. It's just hearing. It's just rising. It's just falling. It's a response that is free from any kind of judgment or reaction. This is bad. This is good. No, this is this. That's all you're doing. And it's it, it keeps you at a distance from the details, from the particulars, from any extrapolation you might make about the object at all. That's what it's designed to do. But at the same time, I mean, it doesn't take you away from the object um, because the object has already arisen. It's already happened. All you're doing is reacting to it. And this is choosing a reaction that is objective and free from any kind of judgment or extrapolation. That's the point. So what can you, what can you do? You can appreciate the state of your mind and the need to see these things. It's normally not how we deal with stress or problems. We try to fix them. We try to escape them. We try to free ourselves from the problem. That's not what mindfulness does, is about. Mindfulness, you have to change your perspective and you have to look. You have to face. And that can be very stressful, very uncomfortable. But again, it's not the actual activity. The problem is the activity makes you confront certain unpleasant realities about yourself. And that's not a problem with the practice, that you need to see those things. Problem with you, and that's well, that's why you do it. You do it to see your problems, your, your, your proclivity towards stress and worry and, and all sorts of things. Doubt even. It sounds like you might be doubting. You're questioning whether this is good for you. But that's just a habit of doubt. There's nothing, there's nothing worthy of doubt in, in, in saying to yourself, seeing when you see something. I mean, what could possibly be wrong with that? It's not going to drive you crazy or give you bad habits. It's just a reminder, hey, this is seeing, this is hearing. It's, uh, it's uncomfortable because comfortable is just reacting and judging and going with the, our, our, our habits. But we can see where that gets us, where that has gotten us when we're not mindful. From what I understand, when we meditate, 
We train ourselves to react in a neutral way to experience. Why is it not possible to train yourself to react in a positive way? Well, it's possible. It's just not very helpful. Because, um, I mean, it depends what you mean by these words. But, but, but yeah, I mean, generally positive means seeing something uh, in a positive light as a good thing. And uh, the problem with seeing things as a good thing is it, 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 it's the definition of that, or it, it, uh, mean what that means is the giving rise to liking of it, right? Seeing something in a positive light is liking it. That's that's the mental reality. You might say seeing it in a positive light, but which what is actually happening when you when you actually do that is the arising of liking. And the problem with liking is it leads to addiction. It leads to needing. And I mean, this is the whole of the Buddha's theory. If you ever read about even just the simply the Four Noble Truths, which anyone who knows anything about Buddhism has heard of the Four Noble Truths, the cause of truth, the cause of suffering, truth of the origin of suffering is is this craving, this is this liking, which leads to wanting and leads to partiality. You can't like everything because not getting what you like leads to disliking and that's the problem is liking leads to disliking it's the nature of it because of you know the very definition or the very nature of liking is a preference and when your preference is not met there's disliking so neutral is only one way of describing it but objective and Really, just clear. I mean, it, it it can sound very off-putting to say you're you're just neutral about everything, like a zombie or something. But that's not how it feels to someone who experiences it. It just feels clear. You're present. There's no room or need for liking or disliking. You've seen through that. You've come to see that happiness has to be independent because reality isn't going to cater to your whims. I want things to be like this or like that. And yeah, to basically answer to quite to answer your question, you can't see everything as positive. It's just positivity doesn't work like that. Positivity is liking, and yeah, that's what liking leads to disappointment anytime you don't get what you like. It's um, there's issues with the brain as well, when it, with brain chemicals that the more you get what you want, the harder it is to experience the same pleasure. Uh, the next time, and so you need more, and and you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. So there are ways to, um, to set up your life in such a way that your liking is always uh, fulfilled, but that can never be sustainable. I mean, it's never a sure thing. Of course, you look in the world at people who have had their whole um, foundation pulled out from underneath them, lose their job, lose their family, lose their health, all, the, all these things, and are unable to cope because of their desires. What, what I think you get at when someone asks this question, what, what, what they're missing is that the kind of thing you're talking about can be achieved if you're at peace and happy, let's say independent of all your experiences it's not seeing specific experiences as positive it's perhaps about having what some might call a positive attitude 
and in other words, being happy, it's not a, it's not a positive attitude, but that's what they might say. The point is, being happy and having your happiness be independent of experience. If we understand it that way, that's real and that's true and that's possible. And that's what Buddhism strives to do, make you independent and at peace and happy, regardless of what you experience. How can I strive for success in the practice without feeding my own ego and establishing a self in the process? Well, you shouldn't strive for success. I don't know that it necessarily feeds your ego, though it, it can. I mean, that can be, you, you've, you've identified some potential problem with striving for success. You shouldn't strive for success. Um, striving should be more striving to um practice properly so rather than success which implies a result uh strive for proficiency i would say strive for um talent strive strive for becoming a proficient skill strive towards skill in mindfulness now, does it, now, that also sounds like it could feed your ego, but, um, I mean, it, it sounds like it in an abstract sense, but mindfulness has no potential to feed the ego. If you get skillful at mindfulness and you try and try and try to be mindful, you'll see any ego and you'll root it out and you'll just start to become mindful. You, you can put a limit on the, the value of striving as well in general, because if you're focused on striving, it can become egotistical. So I think, um, well, it's true that you should strive to become skillful. You, you shouldn't focus on the striving aspect of it. Uh, it should become quite natural, in fact. What you'll see is it's a challenge in the beginning. You, you, you'll be able to see your lethargy. You'll see the rigidity of the mind, the, 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 the torpor in the mind, the sloth in the mind. And you, you'll, if you take that as an object, you, it will change that gradually. So it should never really, well, in the beginning it might feel like striving, but that's not how it should feel as you progress. It should feel much more natural, and you just feel like you have more energy, you have more uh, capacity to be present. Your mind is more wieldy, malleable, flexible energetic. How do I discern whether I am repressing rather than seeing clearly? Lust may arise in dependence upon a visual sight, but without the sight there is no lust. There is a feeling I am repressing it. Well, that feeling is just a feeling. You're interpreting it as repressing. I am repressing is not something that is actually a reality, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, you'll know when you're seeing clearly. But uh, feelings of repression should just be noted as feelings because that's all they are. They're not repression. They're just feelings. There can be pressure in the, in the brain, in the skull, right? That sort of thing is possible. There can be headaches. There can be tension in the body. All of those are just experiences, and that's how you should look at them. Or It's not a matter of what they are, because they are what you interpret them to be. The point is, your best bet and the 
um, the practice of mindfulness involves just seeing feelings as feelings, seeing lust as lust and seeing as seeing. And you will see when you note seeing, for example, if you say seeing, seeing, like a visual sight, uh, that the lust sometimes doesn't arise, but there can also be tension and pressure and you say, oh, I'm just repressing it, but that's not usually the reason. The reason is there is a, a control, a forcing and a control involved. And those are just things you have to see. I mean, just pay attention to them. Don't make more out of the experiences than they are. Tension and pressure and headaches and whatever. Take them as an object of mindfulness. You'll figure it out. It's just um, our capacity or our ability to be mindful without trying to control, without trying to react, without reacting and so on is very limited in the beginning. Our capacity to stay mindful is limited. So it's about skill. And that takes time. Just be patient, you'll get it. The practice is so simple, the technique is so simple um, that all you really have to do is be patient and let all of the ba bad practices and bad techniques just work themselves out because you'll see them. You'll say, well, that's not being mindful. That's not this simple practice of saying, seeing or hearing or so on. Just be clear what is not the practice. And if you're mindful of that, take those as an object of mindfulness. You'll figure it out. It will all work itself out. There's really no need to worry or doubt about whether you're doing the practice right or wrong. It's just so simple. All the rest of the stuff you think, is this a sign that I'm doing it right or is that a sign I'm doing it wrong? All of that is extra stuff that you should take as a, you shouldn't take it as a sign you're doing right or wrong. You should take it as an object of meditation. You have to be quick. You have to be flexible. That's what it's teaching you. How does one go about mindfully practicing compassion while not judging others based on past actions and negative thinking cycles? Well, mindfulness lets you deal with judgment and negative thinking cycles. So there's really your answer is if you practice mindfulness well, practices like compassion become much more pure and unadulterated. Same with, with friendliness, metta, right? Same with all of the Brahma Viharas. Someone who practices mindfulness is much better able to practice these. At the same time, you can take some time to practice them as a support for your mindfulness, but I wouldn't take them too far or worry too much about them. Um, but a more, a more direct answer to your question, though that, that answer I think is very important. It's important to understand how mindfulness will root those things out. Um, there are just specific practices that mantras for practicing compassion, and you should learn those for practicing compassion, for practicing metta, for practicing all the four Brahma Viharas. Just learn them and just try and, and apply them. And you can use mindfulness as sort of a control to catch yourself when you're not actually practicing compassion. But, you know, honestly, I wouldn't put too much uh, of your attention or, or energy into practicing compassion or friendliness. Just do it as a as a support for your mindfulness. So you're practicing mindfulness, do it in proportion. So practice uh, 15 minutes walking, 15 minutes sitting, maybe I'll do five minutes of the Brahma Viharas. 
compassion, friendliness, sympathetic joy, equanimity. Just reminding myself of the proper relationship with other beings. I'm often fatigued, and the doctors say I have chronic fatigue. How can I manage persistent tiredness using mindfulness? For example, it's hard for me even to walk short distances, etc. Do what is hard. That's that's the answer. I mean, that's one of the main answers. So there, there's potentially other issues. Like, I mean, there's even things like overeating and that sort of thing. But um, far far and away, the most important thing is to do what's hard. So if it's hard for you to walk short distances, then walk short distances. Walk as much as it's hard. Walk until it well, not until it gets hard. Walk for as long as you're able uh, when it's hard. Things like that are what uh, what change the mind, what uh, train the mind, which provide you with new capacity. Try and note the tiredness, and that can be hard. Hard is a, is a generally a good sign when you're practicing mindfulness. It's a sign that you are training, you are cultivating wholesomeness. It should be a challenge. So one big thing you have to remember about mindfulness, don't be concerned when it's challenging or feel like there's a, pro- a re- problem or that for some reason meditation should be comfortable or easy. These are the ideas we have about meditation, that it should be a relaxed, a relaxing thing, it should bring peace and so on. It's not really how it works. Mindfulness is about facing, and that can be very uncomfortable. Face your your tiredness. Even when you can't do, like you just can't walk anymore, then try and do standing because you're still challenging yourself. You're saying, oh, I'm okay, fine, no walking, but I'm not going to sit down quite yet. I'll try and do some standing. It means challenge yourself. Change your perspective on this, that hard isn't a sign that something's wrong. Don't whine and complain. No complaints. Get to work. How do I see the downside of lust in meditation? I've been trying to note how unpleasant the wanting is, but I can't shake the false perspective that the pleasure is worth it. Okay, so you would never, ever... In this in this tradition, note how unpleasant something is. You would never do that. That's not noting; that's judging, and it's false judgment because you clearly don't believe it. So you're trying to brainwash yourself. That is absolutely not what mindfulness is about, and it's dangerous. And you should stop right away. Anyone who is doing anything like this, I can't help you. I can't uh, prevent you from cultivating problems. I don't want to scare anyone. But if a person is obsessive, this is how they create problems in meditation. You're dealing with the mind, and the mind is a very powerful thing. If you start brainwashing yourself, like like trying to convince yourself of something that you don't believe, all bets are off. It's not going to, you know, it's not immediately dangerous, but that's how danger occurs. That is absolutely not the path. So not to not to alarm you. It's usually harmless. It's usually something you after some time realize, oh, this is useless but the worst what usually happens the worst is people just stop meditating because they feel you know, i just i don't just don't get it or so on but you're, you're doing it all wrong 
You should not note how unpleasant wanting is. You should try and note the wanting. Try and be mindful of it. If you believe that something is pleasurable, just say liking. If you think it's worth it, say thinking or feeling or or knowing or so on. The only way you can see the downside of something is if you see it for what it is. That's all we're trying to do. Don't look for a downside. Just look at it. If it's true that there's a problem with something, you'll see it. You'll see it without looking for it. As long as you can see it clearly, that's all you have to do. It's very important. You would never note how unpleasant something is. You would note the experience as it is. If you feel unpleasant, you would note the unpleasantness. That's the only time you would note that. You could say unpleasant. I mean, it's better just to say disliking or sad or, or um, pain or so on. Unpleasant is still kind of vague and a bit judgmental. One becomes sotapanna without a long intensive retreat, just practicing daily. So sotapanna means you see nibbana, and it's not an easy thing to do. Um, there's really no good answer to this kind of question. I mean, the answer is always going to be yes. Um, the only way it could be a no is if you're talking, you're saying. Can one become sotapanna without doing what is required to become a sotapanna? It's the only way that could be a no. But and you need to understand how, how what a profound um, attainment you're talking about. You've been born and die countless times. Like countless, is, it just doesn't do it justice. How many times? Like take a billion and you're still talking about nothing. We don't even understand a billion, but take a Google, which is, what is a Google? One with a hundred zeros after it, I think, is a Google, or a Googleplex or something. Take that many lifetimes, and that's still nothing. That's still not near, I mean, it's just no, no uh, meaningful measure in relation to how many times you've been born. And in none of those births, None of that time did you ever become a sotapanna. So you're talking about something that is completely new to samsara, which is a deceptively simple statement that has so much more weight to it. Nothing is new in samsara. That's just not a thing. And yet this is new. So it requires something quite special. It happens, of course. I mean, it, it, many people became sotapanna in the Buddhist time. There's even something like a Pacheka Buddha who becomes enlightened without the help of a Buddha, so just spontaneously, and that happens throughout throughout the history of samsara. I mean, it's constantly happening. It's just still very, very rare is the point. I mean, we're talking one in, a, I don't know how many Google or how many billion creatures or beings is able to attain it. So neither one of those things is going to be enough. You need some pretty strong uh, build-up, usually lifetime after lifetime, before you can get to the point where you can become a sotapanna. But the, the good side is you've already done a lot of that in order to become a human, in order to be born in the time of the Buddha, in order to have interest in the Buddha's teaching, in order to study the Buddha's teaching, in order to practice Buddha's teaching. These are all good signs that you've done a lot of good things in the past. You're on the right track. 
Now, what should you do if you're unable to do an intensive retreat? Is it possible you could get the rest of the distance just practicing daily, you yourself? Going to depend very much on you, and it's highly unlikely for most people because they just don't have the capacity to do it themselves. But it can happen if you're a very special person, or it could happen if you practice daily for many, many more lifetimes. Maybe some lifetime that'll be enough. I am planning a self-retreat with the method as taught by you. Will you, or someone from the community, be able to guide me? I think uh, someone contacted me recently. I don't think I contacted them back. This might be you. I think it was this person had already done the at-home course. So if you haven't done the at-home course, do that first. I'm going to assume that you've done the at-home course. And uh, if I, my assumption is wrong, well, then you know what to do anyway. So for those people who have already done the at-home course, uh, maybe, maybe. Um, problematic we have to set up a time every day and it can be awkward to set that up but more importantly it's just problematic because we don't know of your your capacity to do the self-retreat um, i mean generally what happens is people just fail and stop they do some some days and they just give up the uh, intensive course is quite a challenge much more so than the at-home course we require quite a bit from you. So you really should try to come and do it at our center or some center. How do you meditate with a mandala? How long are you supposed to look at it? And should it be the entire time meditating? Well, I don't meditate with a mandala. Um... So I don't feel like I'm supposed to look at mandalas at all. And it certainly wouldn't be the entire time I meditate. Now, you're not asking about me. I'm being kind of funny, but I don't know how to answer this because it's clear you don't know anything about the practice. That It's more likely that you don't know anything about the practice that I do teach. So I think a mandala is a sort of a like Dumbo's feather or something. It's a placebo. Well, that's not quite fair. I mean, it's a way of, of holding people's attention. It's a, you know, it's a, it's like a child's toy. That's that's probably a more better analogy. A mandala is a child's toy. So for children, you give them something to play with, and it keeps their attention. But. I don't think it's necessary. You don't see it in any of the texts, right? You don't see the Buddha saying, okay, mandalas are a thing. No, you don't see that at all. So I would recommend reading our booklet on how to meditate and be a big, be a big boy or girl and try and take your medicine. Put aside your toys. Is Parinibbana eternal oblivion? Is this the end result of wisdom and the best possible mindfulness practice? Oblivion. 
So with Parinibbana, the five aggregates no longer arise. Is that oblivion? That's all there is, is the five aggregates and not the five aggregates. So the, the problem with the, the term oblivion is that the whole point of the practice is to realize that oblivion is constant anyway. There is no self that goes to oblivion or is not in oblivion. Obliterated. It's not obliterated. Obliteration occurs uh, every moment. Five aggregates arise and cease, and they cease into oblivion. All that happens at Nibbana or Parinibbana is they no longer arise. And they no longer arise because there's no desire to trigger more arising. So as long as you desire them, you don't have to worry about it. But one can get come to the point where one has had enough of arising. It's not something that you can stumble upon. It's not something you can be mistaken about, like, oops, wait, I didn't mean that. It happens at the end of samsara when someone comes to full realization that there's nothing worth clinging to. So I wouldn't worry about it. But yeah, that's... Uh, I mean, the, the whole of wisdom is along those lines. And what it means for most people is the giving up of the more unreasonable attachments to the five aggregates, the ones that cause intense suffering. Most of us are able to see that, and that's what we obliterate. It's not really obliteration. We obliterate potential. We obliterate the potential for more arising of those states. So they're said to be obliterated, but nothing was ever obliterated. It's just potential. They no longer have the potential to arise because there's no, there's not enough delusion to give rise to such obviously painful and un, unskillful, terrible states, harmful states. I hear aggressive people. I lock onto my negative response. Sometimes I can do hearing and note my response after, yet it is hard for me to regard it as pure sound. I am triggered. Do you have any advice? Yeah, I mean, don't try and regard it as pure sound. You see what you're saying there, and what the mistake. This is you should be able to identify. We, we should we should recognize and identify these mistakes. You are trying to regard it as something. So you're trying to see something as something or experience something as something. You see, that's not what we're trying. That's not mindfulness. Mindfulness is face it as it is. How do you experience it? Well, I don't experience it as pure sound. I'm triggered. How do you, you know, that triggering or that response, uh, the negative response, is reality. You are um, instructed to experience the negative response as the negative response. What you're experiencing is non-self, and that's important, that you're not in control, that you can't try and regard something as something. And you should stop trying. Mindfulness teaches you to stop trying. It teaches you to, ex to perceive things as non-self, as not under my control, not 
me, not mine. To just experience them as they are, without any identification or feeling like you have control or power or ownership over them. When you dislike something, disliking. If you like something, liking. That's it. If you hear something, hearing. Don't try and experience it in any way. Just see how you do experience it. Learn about how you do experience because that's where change comes from. It comes from clarity. That's where good change comes from. Change comes from your responses to things. And with clarity come the right responses. And so they change in a positive way when you see things as they are. What is the benefit of adding touching points to the meditation practice? There's no special benefit. It's just um, more work, basically, because your mind gets stronger. It's like you add weights. or Weights isn't a really good example, but it's kind of like that. When you do physical training, you add more weights, but it's more like when you're juggling and you add more balls. So juggling two balls is, I think I could even do that, but juggling three balls, I could never do that. And some people can juggle four and five and six and seven, but it takes more work. It's that kind of thing. It's just um, a, a sharper training of the mind because you have to remember and, and so on. And it lets you see when you're distracted better because you, you won't be able to remember. It also has the, 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 the benefit of creating flexibility because it's many different spots. If you focus on the same spot on the body, it can lead to laziness, sloppiness. It can get you away from create create deviation from actual mindfulness. And if you're forced to do it with with different points, you have to constantly be pulling your mind back. It's it's more of a challenge. Is Elon Musk's vision of colonizing the galaxy, expanding the scope and scale of consciousness, understand the physical world, develop tech, to then ask better questions, compatible with Buddhism? Colonizing the galaxy. Um, so I'll put it this way. I, I would say governments and scientific that's like governments are problematic, but scientific um, institutions, people who are experts on these sorts of things should be put in charge of such uh, questions. Uh, and so they would do it on a scientific basis, and it should be in conjunction with sociologists who understand the importance. I mean... The problem with colonizing the galaxy is that um, it's not really what's necessary. And we're, we've proven that we're not capable of taking care of one planet, let alone, uh, you know, what, what benefit would it be for us to go and ruin another, suppose there was another habitable planet out there? What would be the benefit of us going and polluting that? I mean, do you think we'd take care of it any better than we've taken care of this one? So the problem isn't that we don't have enough room, that's really not the problem. Scope and scale of consciousness, I don't even know what that means. Consciousness is a pretty simple thing. It, it has a specific scope. 
you want to expand the scope and scale of consciousness, really the only thing you can do is practice samatha meditation. And that's very internal. It has nothing to do with conquering the galaxy. Understanding the physical world, again, mindfulness is your best bet. I don't know this person that you've mentioned. I don't have a very good opinion of him. All I know of him is, uh, well, one of the biggest things I know is, is when I was in Thailand and there were these kids in the cave, he he was quite mean and cruel to one of the people who was instrumental in, in saving the kids and ended up uh, doing some fairly un, unwholesome things from my, my perspective. I mean, I don't know the, de- the real details, but certainly not someone who I would say is uh, meant to be a leader. I would say the people who helped those kids out of the cave are far better equipped to be leaders and visionaries. Uh, developing tech, well, we've seen that's very much a two-sided, double-edged sword, and the side of disadvantage has always been greater because technology is just polluting the earth, and uh, I mean, it's used for war, it's used for violence, it's create what created the nuclear bomb. Ask better questions. Well, again, I don't know that this person that you mentioned is the best person to ask the right questions, but I'm glad that you're here asking questions, all of you, and I hope some of the answers uh, that I give, I mean, I don't pretend to be the best person to answer people's questions, but um, I think Buddhism as a teaching has a lot of good answers and good advice and good teachings, so I try to present those, and I think that's where you're going to get the best questions and answers. The best questions will come from someone who is being mindful. And in fact, the more mindful they are, the fewer questions they will have because they'll find the answers. So I don't know if that answers your question, but um, yeah, I wouldn't, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to talk. I've probably already made a mistake by talking too much about this person, but uh, I would question the the, the direction of this question of your question as being based on understanding of the Buddha's teaching. Thank you, Bhante. We've uh, crossed the hour, and you've answered every question we're prepared to ask today. Thank you for taking the extra okay. time. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jim, for your help as well. Thank you, everyone, for all your good questions. Everyone, may you all find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Have a good week. Sadhu. Sadhu.